Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 5, verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Laura. So, uh, pastor and writer Eugene Peterson uh, says that a pastor's job is not to solve people's problems, or to make them happy. But a pastor's job is to help them see grace operating in their lives. And a statement like this is especially helpful if you're a pastor and the Sermon on the Mount uh, is your text. It's a relief because scriptures like the one that was just read, if people steal the shirt off of your back, give them another shirt on top of that. If people slap you in the face, turn the other cheek, people sue you, be kind to them. Uh, It's a relief that the pressure is not on me to help you be happy with what Jesus has said here or anywhere else in the sermon. But it's also a challenge because it is my job to show you the grace that is in this teaching. Uh, And so Martin Luther King Jr., when he uh, was buried— was eulogized by a friend of his, a Baptist minister and fellow civil rights activist, Benjamin Mays. And this is an excerpt from that eulogy from Pastor Mays. If anybody knew the meaning of suffering, King knew. His house was bombed, living day by day for 13 years under constant threats of death, maliciously and falsely accused, stabbed, slugged in a hotel lobby, jailed over 20 times, deeply hurt because friends betrayed him, and yet this man had no bitterness in his heart, no rancor in his soul, no revenge in his mind. And he went up and down the length and breadth of this world, preaching nonviolence and the redemptive power of love. So, Benjamin Mays may have been thinking back to a sermon that Dr. King actually gave on this text from Matthew chapter 5 called Loving Your Enemies. And in that sermon, King said these words, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. And so therefore, the people of Christ must meet hate with love. And so we're going to talk today, or I'm going to talk today, about what it might look like to meet hate with love. And the initial encouragement is, it's not only Dr. King who has gone before us as an example, it's Jesus Christ who's gone before us as a resource for this. Uh, As recipients of grace, we are called by our Master Jesus to also be dispensers thereof. And grace is offering kindness, practical kindness 
to those who do not deserve it. When you're slapped or sued, don't retaliate. When you're forced to go a mile, go two instead. When somebody takes a shirt off your back, give them another shirt on top of that. So, two points to consider this morning. The first is the portrait, the portrait of greatness, and the second is the power for it. So, the portrait of greatness. If you have come to the point in your life and in your journey where you can respond to ugliness with kindness, you have become great. You have become a powerful human being. You know, even Gandhi said this, you know, not a Christian. Gandhi said this, only powerful people can forgive. And he was right. So, if you go to chapter 20, which is 15 chapters to the right of the one that we're in right now, Jesus defines greatness in a teachable moment when a couple of his disciples, James and John, send their mom to petition Jesus for something. And, and their mom says, Lord, when you're in your kingdom, when, you, when you've made all things new, when, when the whole world knows who you are and what your identity is, and it's unmistakable that you're the king of every square inch of the universe and always have been and always will be, can my boys sit at your right and your hand so that they can get a little bit of the glory too, so that they can get a little bit of the attention, the acclaim, so they can get some of the power and authority along with you. And Jesus answers in a teachable moment saying this. You're getting it all wrong because even though the world may define greatness as being able to lord it over other people, being the boss, being large and in charge, celebrity, all these things that you're asking for on behalf of your children, which really I know they're asking me through you because they were too scared and cowardly to come to me themselves. And they knew deep down that it was wrong to ask, and so they sent their dysfunctional mama to ask me instead. But let me tell you what great greatness is. Greatness is invisible. Greatness is quiet. Greatness is running from the spotlight, not into it. Greatness is not your life for my glory, but it's my life for your glory and flourishing. Greatness is to lay down your life, just as the Son of Man lays down his life as a ransom for many. So, one of my seminary professors, also, um, you know, a teacher to a lot of our pastors, Casey Kramer and David Filson and Todd Teller and, and uh, Kevin Twitt uh, was there with us as well, and, 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 and some others I'm, I'm, I'm not in including just because of, of amnesia. But plenty of people have sat under a man who's probably the most humble and kind human being that I've ever met in my life. He is sort of the, the essence of Tim McGraw's song, right? Always stay humble and kind. And he's a man named Jerem Bars. And one of the things that Jerem taught us was this. You know that you're a servant, or you know you're not a servant when somebody treats you like one, especially when a difficult, high-maintenance, bothersome, costly-to-be-in-relationship-with person treats you like a servant. You will know whether or not that grace is operating in your heart and the degree to which it is. The supreme test is, is the one that's going to be covered next week, which is about loving your enemies. And so I'm, I'm just going to give a little bit of a prequel to that this week. 
And so the first question I want to put out there is, is Jesus asking his followers to be doormats? Is he asking us to make ourselves vulnerable to people who are violent and abusive and to, to kleptomaniacs and, and to litigious people who are always taking other people? Are we just supposed to lay down and let them step on us? And I think that <clears throat> there is a scripture in the Old Testament, which is a fairly famous uh, scripture to Bible readers, and it's, it's, uh, it's Micah 6.8 where it combines uh, several sibling virtues, where it says that, that God has shown you what is good and what he, he, the Lord requires of you to, to do justly and to love mercy and walk humbly with God. And so you've got tenderness over here, and you've got strength over here. You've got gentleness over here. You've got fierceness over here. You've got the lamb over here. You've got the lion over here. And, and, and Jesus is saying, and the Scriptures are saying, and Micah is saying, it's all of the above. And so I think it's important, I know it's important to point out, especially to the tenderhearted among us, especially to the codependent leaning among us, Jesus is not prohibiting self-defense. He is not saying don't avoid, or, or he's, he's not saying we shouldn't avoid bullies. He's not requiring us to trust people who are mean and who don't have a track record of, of treating us or others with civility and kindness. He is not requiring us to make ourselves vulnerable to get slapped around over and over and over again. That's not what he's saying at all. And so, to, to remember, the whole Scripture, every bit of Scripture is in, interpreted in, in light of the whole of Scripture. And, and what Micah says is that in addition to loving mercy and, and, and walking humbly, we are to do justly. And by definition, justice is setting things right. And setting things right when things are wrong often calls for us to be confrontational. The world of addiction recovery calls this an, an, an intervention. Did you know that Jesus was not always nice? Did you know that? Do you, do you know that it's not sacrilegious to say Jesus wasn't nice? It's actually sacrilegious to say that he was. Because when, when when Peter got the nature and character and person and purpose and mission of Jesus wrong, Jesus pointed out to Peter how utterly important it was to get your Christology right, to understand fully who Jesus is, fully God, fully man, full of grace and truth, died, risen, will come again to judge the living and the dead, all of the above, way in the truth and the life, nobody comes to the Father but through him, and so on and so on and so on. The Christ, the Son of the living God, the fulfillment of all the prophets. Jesus called Peter Satan. One of his closest friends and followers called him Satan for getting the nature of Christ wrong. Oh, you shouldn't go to it. You shouldn't suffer. You're the king after all. Tempting him away from his very purpose. Or chapter 21 when people are treating the temple, the church, the, 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 the worship gathering as an opportunity to network as an opportunity to build their business rather than a place for prayer and for worship and surrendering their hearts to the living God. Jesus had a hissy fit in church right there in whatever their narthex was. Where did that word come from? But he, he picked up tables and he turned them over. He got fuming angry. Or chapter 23 to, to, to religious professionals like myself who who 
who also lived their lives from a place of hypocrisy, who paraded their virtues or their so-called virtues in front of everybody. And Jesus refers to them as snakes. He's basically saying, you're like the serpent in the Garden of Eden. You're deceivers. And calling them whitewashed tombs, you're more dead than you are alive, even though you're all polished and pretty on the outside. The cross of Jesus itself is an act of defiance, and, and it was also an act of power, which is terribly ironic because when the, when, the, when the disciples saw Jesus die on the cross, they became discouraged and they treated it as, as the biggest loss of, 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 of the history of the human race. And, 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 and you know, maybe he's not who he, he, who he said he was after all. And they run and they hide and, 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 and they're discouraged and defeated because they don't fully understand yet the, the, the power of the cross, that, that, that the greatest power that Jesus could exercise, you know, Jesus who was tempted by the thieves to, to take himself down and, and the soldiers to take himself down from the cross if he's so powerful, the disciples didn't realize that the greater act of power wasn't to take himself off the cross, but to keep himself up there. Because right, as Gandhi said, only powerful beings can forgive. You know, the optics of the cross, you know, to, to some, like Pontius Pilate, are, are, are a picture and a portrait of, of weakness. If you've seen Jesus Christ Superstar, the, the play, if you're a theater person, you, you may remember that scene where, where Jesus is brought into Pilate, and Pilate just sort of mocks him and says, huh, you're a king? You're so small, you're not a king at all. And then you've got, you know, the, the, the great Baptist prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, looking at the same event, but with a different set of eyes, which are the eyes that Jesus is calling us to see through. Where Spurgeon refers to the cross in this way, the king stoops to conquer. He loses in order to win. He demonstrates his power through a voluntary act of weakness. So even the cross is, is, is an act of defiance. You know, C.S. Lewis said that Christianity is a fighting religion. Don't dare think that Christianity is a wimpy religion. It's a fighting religion. It thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. This is why advocacy for the little guy is such a big deal to our church. This is why we deploy hundreds of thousands of dollars and hundreds of people on a regular basis through missional communities, missional living, partnerships, and so on, to battle against things like addiction, to, to protect the vulnerable unborn, to protect the vulnerable born, like refugees and, and minorities and victims of the sex trade and those who are victims of poverty and inequality those who are impacted by disability and special needs and anxiety and depression, and on and on and on. This is why we are so zealous for doing justly, for setting things right where things are broken and where people and places are broken. It's what the theologians call the church militant. It's the church that fights it's the church that, that, that is willing at times to lose its cool without losing its character. 
and without losing gentleness and tenderness. Because remember, justice and walking humbly and loving mercy, they all go together. You lose one, you lose them all. So Christianity is sometimes fierce, but what Jesus is after here is, even though it may be fierce at times, it's never vindictive. I love Sheriff Darren Hall, the, the Nashville um, sheriff's philosophy. It's, it's a rehabilitation philosophy for incarcerated men and women. We, we actually have some, some, some missional activity in our min, women's ministry, especially is engaged with, with, with the incarcerated population of Nashville. And one of the things that, 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 that Sheriff Hall you know, instills into his officers and employees and, and, and the whole system is this. We are here to arrest the problem, not the person. We arrest the problem so as to reclaim the person. And this does take the courage of intervention, to risk losing relationship in an effort to win the soul. Uh, because sometimes, again, uh, an intervention is going to be interpreted wrongly by the addict or, or the, the person who's caught in sex addiction or the person who is being a bully or the person who is, you know, abusing a substance or abusing something or someone else. You know, any kind of intervention is going to be interpreted as, as an attack, and, and it really is, but, but you're attacking the problem, not the person. You're trying to reclaim the person. You're fighting against the toxins that are there uh, so as to fight for the person's heart, as Pastor Russ Ramsey likes to say so often, which I think is a beautiful way of putting it. So Jim Morrison was the front man for, for The Doors. Remember the 60s band, The Doors? So talented. And I, I don't know if you've ever read, you know, maybe, maybe some of the music people have read uh, the biography of Jim Morrison. It's called No One Gets Out of Here Alive. And, and it only takes a few pages to understand how self-destructive of a person that, that, that Jim Morrison was. I think, I think he died in his 20s. Um, maybe early 30s, maybe late, maybe it was that magical number, that, that horrible number of 29 that seems to, to, to be the age that, that gets so many addicted and self-destructive musicians. But he died very young. One of the things that Jim Morrison said about friendship is this, that a friend is someone who gives you total freedom to be yourself. And maybe it was having friends like that that actually led to Jim Morrison's downfall. Because you have to ask the question, which self are you talking about? Are you saying that friends give you freedom to be your flourishing self? Or are you saying that true friends give you total freedom to be your foolish and self-destructive self? Because those, those are two very different pictures there. But for self-destructive behavior, even in our one-anothering, intervention has to be part of our community and life together. In other words, we, we don't sit here as doormats. We don't act and function as one another's codependent enablers. Grace is not a license for codependent enabling. Grace calls me to confront you, and, and grace calls you to confront me when we're walking out of line with the gospel, just as even the Apostle Paul did with the Apostle Peter, as we read about in Galatians 2. I guess the takeaway here is, it's not that just that Jesus wasn't nice. Jesus was not stupid. He loves us more than we love ourselves. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He's more committed to our flourishing than we are to our own flourishing. And so a call to surrender to his tenderness and his toughness and, and, and live accordingly is, is a huge part of what this is. 
But the big question here is, you know, let's get back to what Jesus did say here. When somebody slaps you, really? Like, turn the other cheek? I think it's important here, as is the case with, with, with a few other places in the Sermon on the Mount, to, to recognize the hyperbole here. Jesus is not saying to literally offer your other cheek for them to slap it. What he is saying is, forgive them. What he is saying is, resist the urge to retaliate, to slap back, to take justice in your own hands rather than leaving justice in the hands of God. And if necessary, if there's an abusive situation or a criminal situation, putting justice into the hands of those that God has ordained and appointed to handle matters of justice, i.e. the authorities. But he's saying if, if you slap back, you just add fuel to the fire, and, and, and if you hold on to this grudge, it, it, it really is the one way that you give the person who is injuring you continuing power over you. They're running your life. If you adopt a retaliatory posture rather than forgiving them as God in Christ has forgiven you. I mean, Bonhoeffer put it this way. He said, violence stands condemned by its failure to evoke counterviolence. You know, Tim Keller, you know, interpreting this passage, you know, was talking about the slap in particular, and he said, think about it. A slap is not an assault on your physical safety. A slap is an assault on your honor and on your good name. And Jesus is saying there has to be a spirit in his followers that's passionate for justice, but without the slightest bit of vindictiveness or vengefulness or spite. Which brings us to the big question, where does the power for this kind of greatness come from? Because I think we're all agreed. None of us is able in our own, you know, resources to muster up the non-retaliatory spirit when somebody is injuring us. And the power is this, that Jesus is kind to us when we are at our very worst and when we are ugly and we are, when we are unkind to Him. So here's a little secret, and this is the truth about this passage as well as every other part of the Sermon on the Mount. It is more about Jesus than it is about us. It's more about Jesus than it is about us. This is a portrait of the greatness of Jesus when He was slapped and turned the other cheek. You know, when, when He had His clothing stripped from him. Literally, remember, the soldiers divided his garments as they mocked him, and then what does he do? He gives another garment, the robe of his righteousness, offering it even to those who are dividing his garments among them, offering the robe of his righteousness as he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus giving to beggars, even when we don't know how much uh, of a beggar we are, Jesus, who went the extra mile, carrying his cross all the way to the death. You know, so, so before we look at this as, as a text about personal ethics, which I, I don't know about you, but if that's all this text is, if all, that's all this instruction is, is personal ethics about how to handle people when they injure me, I, I'm going to be crushed by this. But when you put it in the context of Ephesians 4.32, where it says, Be kind, be tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Or remembering, as Spurgeon said, God is more willing to forgive 
then we are willing to sin. Isn't that beautiful? That where our sin abounds, the grace of God abounds more. That God is more willing to forgive than we are to sin. You know, he looks at the rich ruler when the rich ruler chooses money over the kingdom of Jesus. And it says that he looked at, 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 at the rich ruler and loved him. Judas, as Judas is in the, in the middle of the act of betraying Jesus to the death after selling him out for a little bit of money, Jesus refers to Judas as friend. He calls him his friend. Or the thief on the cross who spent the last you know, number of hours mocking him with, his, with, it, with his, you know, the other thief on the cross you know, between whom Jesus was crucified. They're both mocking him for a few hours. And then one of them sort of snaps to his senses, realizes he's going to die, recognizes who Jesus really is and what Jesus can do for him. And he says, remember me in your kingdom, Lord, will you? And Jesus immediately looks at this unbaptized man and says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Or Peter, after Peter, you know, sells Jesus out three times, Jesus returns, and, and the next conversation they have is, is a word of affirmation to Jesus, or, or to Peter. Peter, I love you. Do you love me? And, and Peter, I've, I've got a job for you. <laughs> Go feed my sheep. You know, because Jesus responds this way to injury, can we now face the truth that, that even though we may at times be victims, we're not just victims. We are also among the slappers and the takers and the beggars. Well, Dr. King put it this way, there is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. How beautiful would it be? How beautiful would it be for us to internalize these things, to believe them, that, 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 that Jesus responds to our sharpest slap, to our greatest theft, to all those times we've taken him to court in our own hearts, that he responds to all of this by doing justly as he receives the justice of God that we deserve so that we never have to encounter it ourselves. Loving mercy and walking humbly the whole way with, the, with God and for our sakes. When we begin to believe this, when we begin to internalize it, that this is what Christ has been and continues to be and will evermore be for us, we will grow in grace too. And we will gain the freedom and the power over time, over the course of a lifetime, and incrementally and albeit slowly, we will gain freedom and power to become those who are tough and tender, who are fierce and gentle, and who arrest problems, not people. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you that it is no man or woman's job to solve other people's problems or to ultimately make other people happy. But because of your grace that is operating in our lives, because passages of Scripture like this are first and foremost the truth about you, 
before they ever become instructions to us. And yet it's because they are the truth about you that the instruction to us becomes possible. Father, teach us what it means that Jesus came to the world in order to arrest the problem that had us burdened and addicted and held down. And that was the sin in us. But instead of arresting us, he set us free as he arrested our problem. Father, teach us to live out of this that we might give glimpses to one another and to the world around us what it means to be with Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. And it's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen.